1: It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Insight Hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Insight Hour
0: we often think of meditation as being the very heart of the path of awakening and of course in many ways it is the cultivation of mindfulness the cultivation of concentration is what makes possible the wisdom that liberates our hearts and our minds but the Buddhist teachings are also more inclusive of life experience than the specialized circumstances of intensive retreat where these insights develop. And as essential as these insights are, the path as a whole is larger and embraces more. And we see this with unmistakable clarity in the various steps of the Eightfold Path. Now, having established ourselves to some degree in right understanding, and then having cultivated and discerned and practiced right thought, you no know, thoughts free of desire, thoughts of renunciation, of loving kindness and compassion, The Buddha then lays out the consequences of these steps in how we live our lives. And these are the next three steps of the path. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Now, as we examine our own commitment to awakening, we might notice a tendency to make this part of the path somewhat of a lesser endeavor, not quite at the same level as our commitment to meditation practice. But if we hold it in this way, what happens is that we are really fragmenting our lives and we're weakening essential elements of the path. Seven of the ten unwholesome actions that the Buddha said to avoid are purified by these three steps of the path, right speech, right action, right livelihood. So seven of the ten unwholesome actions we work on in terms of weakening their strength, weakening their power in our lives when we practice these steps. And each one of them requires a mindful attention. We need to be paying attention in our speech, in our actions, in our livelihood. And then working together, these three become the foundation, become the platform, become the basis for deepening mindfulness, deepening concentration, deepening wisdom. So we need to integrate them in our lives. This is what Bhikkhu Bodhi said about this, and I think it's... um, a beautiful expression of the depth and the power of this part of the practice. He said, Through the principles laid down in this section, though the principles laid down in this section, restrain immoral actions and promote good conduct, their ultimate purpose is not so much ethical as spiritual. They are not prescribed merely as guides to action, but primarily as aids to mental purification. As a necessary measure for human well-being, ethics has its own justification in the Buddhist teachings, and its importance cannot be underrated. But in the special context of the Noble Eightfold Path, ethical principles are subordinate to the path's governing goal, which is final deliverance from suffering. I find that very telling that right speech, right action, right livelihood do lay out ethical principles, but they also go beyond the practice of ethics, of virtue. They really are in the service of liberation, of freedom from suffering. So the first of these triad of path factors is right speech. And we all know how powerful and influence speech is in our lives. We speak a lot, every day, except here perhaps. And our speech conditions our relationships, our speech conditions our minds, our speech conditions karmic consequences, karmic results as they unfold in the future. The most basic aspect of right speech is truthfulness, not saying that which is untrue. And although this seems so obvious and straightforward, it may not be as easy to practice as we assume. Now there are many kinds of false speech might be slight exaggerations it might be humorous untruths it might be falsehoods that are motivated from a sense of self-protection or motivated because we think we're protecting someone else you know when we say something which is untrue or we shade the truth sometimes there are deliberate lies told with malicious intent, you know, to cause divisiveness and harm. It was very interesting last year, you know, during the whole political campaign. Of course, so much is said. And some of the news programs had what they called fact checks, you know, where they just checked on the truth value of much of what was said. And from both sides, you know, it wasn't limited to one side there was such a long list of statements that were made that were simply untrue. So this is not kind of a rarefied event. No, it really pervades our society. So in any situation where we find ourselves saying something that is untrue, it's really helpful to investigate and to look at What is our motivation? What is the motivation behind it? Is it greed for something? No, a desire for recognition? Is it motivated by a kind of self-aggrandizement? Maybe the motivation for a lie or an untruth is a fear of rejection? And so we say something that's not quite true. Or out of jealousy. or could be many, many different motives. We want to discover this side of ourselves. Telling untruths also becomes very complicated. Our lives become complicated. Because then we need to tell other lies to bolster the first. And then we have to remember it all. Mark Twain, with his usual wit, expressed it very well. He said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. (laughs) You know, and it's so true. (laughs) So, it just lends this great simplicity in our lives. Lying is a great corrosive force because it corrodes trust in our relationships, it corrodes trust in society. It really undermines our ability to trust. Nietzsche said that, I'm not upset that you lied to me. I'm upset that from now on, I can't believe you. You So just think of what that does in our relationships. Now it undermines the whole basis of trust, of friendship, of respect. I'm upset that I can no longer believe you. The Buddha spoke of this very bluntly. he, He spoke so unambiguously about this. He said, Thus one should never knowingly speak a lie, either for the sake of one's own advantage or for the sake of another person's advantage. Or, for the sake of any advantage whatsoever, you know and we can so easily rationalize you know an untruth or a lie, and tell ourselves that there is a good reason for it. And yet the Buddha is coming out very strongly in his statement, not for any reason whatsoever, for any advantage whatsoever, should we say that which is untrue. In the Bodhisattva's long journey to Buddhahood, you know, he, as the stories are told, he committed many misdeeds you know, and at different times broke one another of the precepts. So as a Bodhisattva working towards Buddhahood, it's not that he was this totally purified being from the beginning. It was a process for him as well. And so on different occasions he did break different precepts and did unskillful actions. But it's said that in all that time, in that long journey to full awakening, that he never knowingly spoke that which is untrue. You know, So critical is truthfulness to this path of awakening. So I think it's helpful to reflect on this you know, and see it as an inspiration for our own commitment to truthfulness. And to really have it be like a pole star, you know, guiding us in our lives. But what seems so simple, you know, just tell the truth, speak the truth. It seems so simple, and yet it can be surprisingly difficult when we're really paying attention to what we say. Now, sometimes little lies just seem to tumble right out, even before we're hardly aware of them. I'll just share with you two yogi stories. Some years ago, at the end of the three-month retreat, you know, we have what are called integration days, where people are talking and reintegrating after the three months of silence. So there are group discussions, and in one of the group discussions, one of the yogis commented, we were talking about, you know, right speech, he commented that he noticed that in his conversations with other yogis, whenever they would ask him, well, you know, how long did you sit for, he'd always add 15 minutes. <laughs> just happens (laughs) you know it's like there's some impulse in us to just make things seem a little better to make ourselves seem a little better there's another story which i've told often because it's it's such a striking example of how sometimes these lies just pop right out again it was during a three-month course and this was up at the retreat center And one evening, a staff person went into the big walk-in refrigerator. And the staff person saw a yogi there, you know, with his hand in the box of dates. And the staff person was very polite and said, oh, can I help you? And the yogi said, oh, I'm looking for the maintenance person. (laughs) It's like the first thing that came to mind. (laughs) You know, self-protection or sometimes it's lies of omission you no know, covering or withholding something that's really of critical importance in a in a situation so that can be as much of a lie as saying that which is untrue you know, the poet adrian rich she wrote lying is done with words and also with silence so it's subtle you know, we need to really see in different situations the range of possibilities, truthfulness or untruthfulness in speech. Is there a kind of untruthfulness in withholding something that is really of importance? This doesn't mean that we go around just blurting out everything we think is true. So the Buddha gave a very simple and useful guideline. He said, speak that which is true and that which is useful. So we need some discerning wisdom here. We need to see, okay, this is true. Is this the useful time to say it? Sometimes we might also be living under the illusion that we're the kind of person who would never lie you know, under any circumstance. And if this is the case, it's often then harder to see or acknowledge when we actually do. And I had a very powerful, painful, and illuminating experience of just this kind of thing. And it was the time, the first retreat I sat beside Pandita in 84. So this goes back. You know, 25 years. So we were going for interviews with him, and I was lost in some notion, some idea I had of where my practice should be. You know, I had done a lot of reading, and I had done a lot of practice by then already, so I had some notion that, yeah, this, uh, this is where my practice is at. Or it was just a concept in my mind. But then I started kind of presenting my experience in that light. You know, and this was all with like half-consciousness. <laughs> you know, so I was presenting my experience in a particular way. It was, it was really a kind of shading of things. And after I finished my report in this one particular interview, Sai just looked at me and he said, that's not true i felt like dying i mean imagine at first it's he's a very powerful teacher middle of a three month retreat you know and so very vulnerable and open anyway and he's just you know very straightforward that's not true it took me days to recover from that Really, I mean, I was working through feelings of shame and self judgment and embarrassment. I mean, but when I finally got to the end of that whole process of working through, you know, those terrible feelings, I came to a place that recognized, yeah, my mind can actually do that. If you had asked me, would you ever kind of shade the truth in an interview? No. I'd never do that. But there it was. And it was revealed in such a clear and unmistakable way. And when I finally could see it and own it and accept it, yeah, the mind can do that as well. It was tremendously freeing. It was really like a burden had been taken off. And it enabled me to see that tendency in the mind which had been obscured by my belief that it would never happen. You know, and so things just lightened up and then when I would see those impulses or a tendency towards that, I could see it much more quickly, much more easily and with much greater lightheartedness because I was being honest about it you know, and I could see it more clearly. Sometimes we're in a situation where it takes tremendous courage to speak the truth. And I read about one particular situation in a wonderful book called Life and Death in Shanghai. Uh, and It's um, by a woman named Nian Cheng. And in it, she described her life in China during the Cultural Revolution. She was the widow of someone who had been the manager of the Shell Petroleum Company in Shanghai. And so, you know, quite a wealthy, uh, upper-class person. During the Cultural Revolution, she was targeted, you know, and imprisoned and tortured, and they were trying to get her to confess to something which was untrue, trying to get her to confess to espionage with show and lie, you know, part of the whole political machinations that were going on then. And she was in prison for years, and all she would have had to do was confess to a lie, and she refused to do it. And the, st- the book is just a powerful and vivid account both of what she went through and kind of the inspiration in herself, her steadfast commitment to the truth. And it was, it was tremendously inspiring that in that, those circumstances and where it would have been so easy to just speak a lie and to be free, but she had a different kind of freedom, you know, and it was quite amazing. Truthfulness, as this first aspect of right speech, has profound implications. Because the whole goal of our practice is to see, to understand, to realize what is true, and to live in accordance with it. You know, one meaning of the term, of the word dharma, is truth, the true nature of things. And so when we practice the dharma, we're really practicing what is true. This again is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He said, truthful speech establishes a correspondence between our inner being and the real nature of phenomena. Thus, much more than an ethical principle, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion. You know, So this is not some insignificant, second-tier part of the path. Right speech means taking our stand on reality rather than on illusion. We're committed to speaking the truth. The Buddha expressed the overriding importance of this in a conversation he had with his young son Rahula. When Rahula was still just a young novice monk. And the Buddha pointed to a bowl of water, a bowl in which there was just a little bit of water at the bottom. And the Buddha gave the example he said, just as there's a little bit, only a little bit of water left at the bottom of the bowl, he said, so little is the spiritual achievement. Of one who is not afraid to tell a deliberate lie. And then the Buddha spoke in a similar, similar way about the water being thrown out and the empty bowl. And finally the Buddha turned the bowl upside down. You know, instead of the concluding example, he said, Do you see, Rahula, <coughs> how this bowl has been turned upside down? In the same way. One who tells a deliberate lie turns his spiritual achievements upside down and becomes incapable of progress. Therefore, the Buddha concluded, one should not speak a deliberate lie even in jest. This is very clear cut, it's not nuanced. Don't say that which is untrue. So, it's really helpful to sensitize ourselves, you know, in the course of our lives, just to have this as a guiding principle in our lives so that it makes us more aware. Whether it's just those small little lies that may just come tumbling out, or bigger ones to protect ourselves or protect somebody else, or maybe rarely, but even to harm someone or cause divisiveness. If we make it the guiding principle, then it's as if just when these impulses may arise in the mind, as they probably will in different situations, it's like a little bell, a little warning bell goes off within us, reminding us, this isn't true. This isn't true. And we're able to pull back. We're able to actually restrain that impulse. And this is a very significant part of our path. So, speaking the truth, the first part of right speech. The second part of right speech, the second aspect, is refraining from slandering, from gossip, you know, and backbiting. The kind of speech that causes disharmony, you know, and loss of friends. Again, the Buddha's words are very straightforward here. He said, what one has heard here is not repeated there so as to cause dissension there. What one has heard there is not repeated here so as not to cause dissension here. One unites those who are divided and encourages those who are united. One delights and rejoices in concord. And it is concord that one spreads by one's words. Again, it just seems so obvious that this is how we should use our speech to cause concord, harmony, bringing people together rather than divisiveness. But the question for us to consider then, given the strong tendency, kind of in our social lives, to gossip about people. What is the enjoyment of it? You know Why do we engage in that kind of speech so commonly? This is, this is not kind of a rare event. So when we find ourselves speaking about other people, when we're gossiping about others, we might look to see what are we getting from that? You know, Is it reaffirming in some way our sense of self? Is there some kind of ego gratification in it? I had a striking example of this. Years ago, somebody came to interview me for a book that he was writing on different spiritual teachers in America. He was a very skilled interviewer. And he came up and we were talking, and, you know, he was really engaging me in conversation. And then he started asking me what I thought about all these different teachers. And I could just see and feel that impulse come up in me because, of course, I had my opinion about each one of them. And it was so tempting, you know, to just give voice. Fortunately, the mindfulness was strong enough to see the impulse. And I just, no. I don't need to say anything about anybody else. And so I didn't. And when the book came out and I saw that everything I had said was in the book, I was so grateful, you know, for the restraint made possible by that mindfulness because it would have been so easy and I could feel the pleasure that I would have gotten. <laughs> and yet there was a much greater pleasure you know and peacefulness from having had that restraint so we need we need to be watchful when i first became interested in buddhism in the peace corps in thailand this goes back to 1965-66 and i was just learning about all this it was it was all new to me so i was reading about the eightfold path and you know right speech and read about this aspect of it so, I decided to make an experiment. And for three months, I decided not to speak about any third person. I wasn't going to speak to someone about someone else. Well, it was challenging, you know, because so much of our conversation is about third parties. What was amazing is that about 90% of my speech was eliminated. <laughs> and it really was. I mean, a huge amount of my speech just was not there. But there was some very interesting consequences of it. First, my mind became a lot more peaceful. It also became a lot less judgmental because I wasn't giving voice to all the little judgments that usually come up. And as I became less judgmental of others, I found that I was becoming less judgmental of myself. So there are always these ramifications and consequences of what we do. And this, this was really a very wholesome thing. So as an experiment at times, you know, you might want to do that. But even if we hold it a little more loosely, you know, and you know maybe be speaking of others at times, but to really watch to watch very carefully, is our intention in speaking of others to someone else, is our intention to divide or to bring people together? Just that, if we simply practiced that in our lives, in our conversation, in our speech, it would transform, it would transform the world if people would practice that. Just that basic question regarding our motivation. Is it to bring people together or is it to separate people? We need to be mindful. We need to be aware. We need to be present. So we're not just, the words are not just spilling out. On another level, sometimes our words can be a kind of gossip about ourselves. You know, it's helpful to notice when our talk is overly self-referential, you know, when we're always bringing the conversation back to ourselves. We might pay attention to that, and again, to see what the motive is. Or we might have the opposite conditioning, of what really is mana or conceit. And rather than always taking center stage, maybe we're falling, you know, into the other extreme of a obsessively staying behind the scenes, never expressing what we think or feel. And so then we want to look at the motivation behind that. You know what's keeping us from speaking appropriately at the right time. There's a lot of subtlety here. And Our life in the world, in relationship, in engagement, is the field for this understanding. Speech can be such a powerful mirror of our minds and our motivations because once the words are already out, it really can show us what was in our minds that we may have missed, both wholesome and unwholesome. There are just so many examples of this. But One time I was driving back from New York with a friend. We spent a few days there. We were driving back just talking about this and that. And then I felt this impulse just to say something very self-referential about, you know, what had happened uh, in New York. But it had no purpose. There was no reason for saying it. And it all had to do with, it was just like A big I am had to be expressed. <laughs> so I saw it in the mind. I saw this impulse arise in the mind. Here I am. and No, I don't need to say that. Because I didn't know there was no relevance to anything. So I saw it, and I, no, I don't need to say that. Let it go. About 10 seconds later, again this strong impulse. Yeah. Ah, no, I don't need to say it. A third time? A fourth time? No, I don't need to say it. Fifth time, out it came. <laughs> it was so illuminating, and for me what it illuminated was the power of this particular defilement of conceit, you know, of mana, that this just sense of I am, and the need for that I am to find expression, and I'm grateful for that little that little experience because it illuminated very clearly the nature of that defilement. It made it more clear to me, really than anything else. You know, it just it was so vivid in its ridiculousness and in its power, in its persistence. Even when I saw it you know, so many times, it's like. It was. I felt pregnant with conceit, and you know it had to be born. And it made one, or it made me appreciate the understanding in the Theravada tradition that this defilement of conceit is so deeply rooted that it's not ultimately purified until our arhanship, until we're fully enlightened. It's the last of the defilements to go, so we can understand it. We can really look at it and learn how it manifests in our speech, you know, and begin to learn how to work with it. With regard to speech, you know, the the Spanish poet uh, Antonio Machado, he he had some good advice. He said. If you want to talk, first ask a question and then listen. Yeah, that's about right. Okay, so the first aspect of right speech is saying what's truthful, this unwavering commitment to truthfulness. Second aspect of right speech is avoiding gossip, you know, backbiting, slandering. The third aspect of right speech has to do with the emotional tone in our minds and hearts, you know, and how the emotional tone conditions and flavors the words that we use. So the practice of this aspect of right speech is refraining from harsh, angry, abusive speech. You know, as the Buddha said, one speaks such words as are gentle, soothing to the ear, loving. Such words as go to the heart are courteous, friendly, and agreeable to many. There's a story from about the Buddha's past lives when he was a bodhisattva. And in this particular life, he was the king of Benares. But He had a difficult mother, and it's said that she was very rude and ill-tongued. But the Bodhisattva, her son, he was aware of this weakness in her, but didn't want to hurt her, you know, by just speaking too plainly. So one day they're walking kind of in the royal park, and on the way a blue jay started screeching and it was a very discordant, unpleasant sound. And it said that everybody covered their ears, you know, and cried, what a, what a harsh call, what a screech, don't let us hear that again. And then later, you know, maybe it was the same day or the next day, they were walking in the park, and this cuckoo bird, which, at least the Indian cuckoo, not very beautiful, but had a very beautiful call. Very beautiful sound. You know, that it called so sweetly, said people were happy and hoped that it would sing again. So, then this was the moment the Bodhisattva was waiting for in terms of talking to his mother. He said, Mother dear, the jay's cry was dreadful and we covered our ears rather than listen to it. No one delights in a coarse language. Though without beauty, the cuckoo won the love and attention of all with its pleasing call. One's speech therefore should be friendly and restrained, calm and full of meaning. And then as with all these Buddhist stories, thus exhorted by her son, the mother became refined in speech and elegant in manners. <laughs> you know, so. But that little story, I read it years ago and somehow the image stayed with me You know, all these years of just the harshness You know of the blue jays cry and how that's likened to harsh abusive speech and the story points to those guidelines i mentioned earlier the bodhisattva was waiting to say both what is true and what is useful so timing is important you know so we wait for the right moment when something true can be heard We need to stay mindful and conscious of the energy behind our words. Because how do we feel when we're on the receiving end of harsh or angry language? You know, somebody is venting in that way towards us. Probably we feel hurt or we feel defensive. We put up some kind of barrier. You know, or perhaps it motivates our own anger in response. So this is not the best environment for good communication. You know, when there's just a barrier and defenses that are put up. And at the most basic level, good communication is what right speech is all about. So harsh language does not serve it. Now this doesn't mean that there should be a suppression of what we're feeling, you know, different feelings, even difficult feelings that we may have. So it's not kind of a, a papering over or covering over of the truth of our emotions, but rather it's to be aware enough, to be mindful enough that we can communicate what we're feeling in a way that promotes connection rather than promotes divisiveness. This takes skill. This takes practice. Right speech is a practice. You know, of the eight steps of the path to awakening, right speech has its own slot. That's why it's so important. The Buddha outlined a practice. that if people would actually apply it in their lives, would really totally transform the world we live in. You know, it's, it's a very powerful teaching. And it points to the fact that there are two aspects in speech One aspect is in what we say and the other aspect is in how we listen. And so both sides are equally important. So this is the practice. And just as you hear this, just imagine yourself putting it into practice and what that would entail. So the Buddha said bhikkhus, There are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with a mind of inner hate. Here in bhikkhus, you should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving-kindness. And starting with that person, pervade all the world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. That's a challenging practice. You know, if somebody is speaking to us untimely, untrue, harshly, with an intent to harm, with a mind of inner hate, our minds will remain unaffected, utter no unskillful words, abide compassionate for their welfare. So that's a tremendous challenge. And a very great practice, you know, because we can't control how other people will speak the words we hear. But we can train our own minds, our own hearts. That's why this step on the path of right speech is not a secondary, you know, it's not a lower tier part of our path. This is a powerful training for us that we can bring into every aspect of our lives. So, the last aspect of right speech, you now it's being truthful, not gossiping or slandering or backbiting, not using harsh or abusive language. You know, using gentle words, being unaffected by the words other people use, remaining in that place of loving-kindness. The last aspect of right speech is also a challenge, and that is refraining from useless talk. And there is a wonderful Pali word for this, sampapalapa. <laughs> you know And it's really onomatopoeia, because the, the word sounds like what it is. some papalapa. And we see this so often in social situations. you know, when we're just hanging out, you know, with our friends. But the useless words, when we say that which is useless kind of the idle chatter, it's so enervating, it's such a loss of energy and it causes a loss of respect You know, because our words become worthless. And sometimes this useless talk can have some really bad consequences, sometimes immediately bad consequences. One yogi told me this story um, which I've mentioned in other talks, but it's such, it's such a powerful example of this. You have to put this in the context of this happened pre 9 11. Okay, so the consequences would have been even worse, and probably it wouldn't have happened after 9 11. But this friend was going to Bali, went to the airport, you know, from New York, was at the airport, sitting on the plane getting settled, he had injured his arm, his hand. So he had one of these kind of, you know, rubbery things to strengthen uh, his hand. And so the flight attendant came by and just said, you know, well, what do you have in your hand? And just the words popped out, plastique, you know, which is an explosive, <laughs> this terrorist used to blow things up. So he, ju- he was being funny, thought he was being funny. Within about two minutes, they had the FBI on the plane. They escorted him off. A huge deal. You know, they held him for a while. The airline would not let him get back on the plane, wouldn't let him fly on that airline. You know, and so days later, he managed to get a reservation on some some other airline. But just, you know, a moment's thoughtlessness around useless speech. Just, what is it? Plastique. So you think he would have learned his lesson. But he said, coming back from Bali, he was sitting in the airport. It did, this didn't have such bad consequences in the moment. But he was sitting in the airport, and he was telling this story to somebody uh, you know, next to him, somebody he didn't know. And He said, you didn't know you were sitting next to a terrorist. <laughs> Again, just, this was pre-911, you 9 know, so it was a slightly different context but useless talk you know it has no meaning so, so sometimes it just passes in the moment and it's just you know enervating but sometimes it really does have consequences so a very good question to hold in our minds before we speak is is this useful does it serve any purpose you know and very often it's not It's really a great practice. I've tried to practice this. this. This has become part of, you know, the bigger understanding of the path in social situations. Just hanging out, and when I can see that impulse, just to throw something into the middle. Useless, totally sampapalapa. If I can see it, if I can see the impulse and refrain from doing it, it's like, it feels so good. It feels like, okay, this was a victory over Mara. You know, there's just that impulse, there's that wanting to do it. No, I don't need to do this, this is useless. And the mind actually is much more peaceful. So this is all part of our practice on the path. You know the Buddhist teachings for the monks were really quite uh, could say strict in terms of guidelines, and there's a whole list of topics uh which for the monastic for the monks and nuns for the monastic community considered unskillful speech, and it's basically speaking about anything that's not the Dharma you know so that's pretty pretty limiting for us in lay life. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's you know, a very impeccable monk, he talks about this in his book on the Eightfold Path. You know, he expands on what this means in terms of lay people and acknowledges that, you know, as lay people involved in interpersonal relationships, there may need there there is a need for you know some kind of just easy social intercourse, you know, small talk with family and friends. So we don't need to become rigid about this. You know, sometimes we're just making polite conversation with people we just meet or with acquaintances. But even within this, even with this expanded understanding you know, of appropriate speech, there is still tremendous room for the practice of restraint of saying those things which are really useless and there are more of them than we might imagine no. it takes mindfulness it takes alertness you know we've seen how powerful a part of our path this practice of right speech is it's not by accident that the Buddha gave it such a prominent place in his teachings. You know, it is the third step on this eightfold path to awakening, to liberation, because it cultivates abstinence from the unwholesome. You know, when we see the unwholesome motivations arising in the mind, we refrain. And so we're strengthening the mind, we're purifying the mind It gives expression to the beautiful states of mind, to the Brahma Viharas. When we practice right speech, we're giving expression to loving kindness, to compassion, to joy in the happiness of others. So we're cultivating the beautiful states. And perhaps most importantly, when we practice right speech, it aligns us with what is true. And that is really the heart of our entire path. So I'd just like to close with this one other teaching of the Buddha regarding right speech. He kind of sums it all up. He says, if speech has five marks monks, it is well-spoken, not badly spoken, blameless and above reproach from the wise What are these five marks? It is speech that is timely, true, gentle, purposeful, and spoken with a mind of loving-kindness. So can we keep these five marks in mind? Timely, true, gentle, purposeful, and spoken with a mind of loving-kindness.